0: I think I'm having an art attack. What's up everybody. And welcome to another episode of David Hockney. I'm just kidding. Of art attack <laughs> with your host, David Hockney
1: and Ed Shay,
0: Ed Ruscha. <laughs> now, We are, uh, we are going to be talking about David Hockney, uh, with your host, Lizzie Dastin, of course. You guys know her. She's an extraordinary art historian. And myself, Justin Bua. And today, I can't mention his name enough because he's, he's really what I love about Hockney. And this is my opinion, obviously. It all is. But this is not <laughs> what I read from the art historians of the world. But Hockney is an interesting bridge of what was going on in the early American painting world to what is happening now. Some people get crusty as they get older. You know what I mean? Like, their their work's like, yeah, it's cool, but you're doing that again, and you did it forever. There's other artists that are always changing and malleable, like bamboo. Like, Picasso was like bamboo. Like, he bent with the wind. And he changed. He had a neuroplasticity that allowed him to go from rose period to blue period to cubism to, everything. He was just always evolving. He's doing sculpture. He's, you know, he's doing etchings. You know, there's a certain neuroplasticity of an artist like a Hockney, where I feel like he bridged the old world to the new world. Like he was a very, very good painter, good draftsman, always doing cool stuff. All of a sudden he gets into collage and then computer. And so he's always evolving. And that's what I think is great about him is his his constant evolution, but at the same time like Madonna, like Madonna is always evolving, or you know. But also um that he you feel the old school art world in his work and now you see the new stuff. And you see he's a real bridge into that where you could still see it. And I know this is a very weird reference and our, our listeners are not gonna get it, but there's a break dancer named Ken Swift. Who comes from the real old school, like originators of the culture. And yet his work is always so fresh and and kind of new. And he's but but through his work, you can see the bridge into the old dancing of where it came from. I feel like in a lot of ways, that's what I feel with Hockney. Always fresh. He really is. He's like an old school B boy.
1: And he does embrace (laughs) technology. I mean, I love that reference. And like many of our listeners, perhaps I did not get it either, but I enjoyed it. And Hockney not only embraced it, but also had ambivalence toward or continues to. But Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically toward his relationship with photography, which he said, photography is all right if you don't mind looking Mm -hmm. at the world from the perspective of a paralyzed cyclops which is a quote I'm never going to forget. Wait, wait, wait.
0: Say that that again.
1: (laughs) Okay. This is a quote that I am just coming up with from my mind, so maybe it's not verbatim, but Hockney said about photography, Mm -hmm. photography is all right if you don't mind looking at the world from the point of view of a paralyzed cyclops. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Which is so cool. So let's, we'll put a pin in his technological advancements, let's talk about when he came out, his identity as a painter, Mm -hmm. and the historical context that really provided the foundation that undergirded the work that he does. So Hockney is born, well, he is English, so he was born in England. And then he ended up moving to the United States, specifically landing in LA. And his work, his paintings from the 60s, they're really aligned with LA pop. And he was working at the same time as Ed Ruscha. And the reason I mentioned him in, in your introduction is because they kind of epitomize the differences in masculinity. And Ed Ruscha is just this hyper-masculine, hyperbolic, heteronormative dude. And then David Hockney, a lot more flamboyant Who in Who throws style. shit on a
0: canvas and gets paid a million dollars. You ever <laughs> see that? Like Edward, Ed Ruscha I just mean, I really like shit. Ed
1: Ruscha, but... We can talk about that at a later date. But yeah. Hockney, he presented in a much more flamboyant way. He identifies as queer, and his work really <laughs> does express and explore and celebrate queer themes, and that's what I'm most excited about, and I'm just going to jump right into it.
0: Go, jump. Which is
1: appropriate because the work is called A Bigger Splash, and it is and a guy a, jumping into the pool. And he did a lot of, <laughs> he did a
0: lot of pool scenes.
1: He did. So in 1967, he did a work called A Bigger Splash. And many of his works, as you mentioned, they represent domestic exteriors, or even some are domestic interiors, but he shows queer life in an everyday, normal, domestic setting. And a bigger splash is interesting because we don't see the diver splashing into the pool. We just see the residue of that performance. We just see the splash. And I think Hockney. Is doing a couple of really complicated, beautiful things. On the one hand, I feel like he is giving a parody of the abstract expressionists because the mm. ABEX artists like Pollock and de Kooning were all about the gesture, the performative nature of the artist's hand. And we don't see the artist, we only see the mark. And I think the splash is Hockney's take on mark making mm-hmm. because it is the impact of the person in the pool and not the actual body of the person which we're not allowed to see. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, I feel like it relates to the epistemology of the closet. The fact that he is underneath something, he is contained by something. And so I think it's almost a a conversation about a closeted identity of a gay man. And -hmm. it makes me think of James Baldwin and his book from maybe 1954, Giovanni's Room, Mm -hmm. which also is about a closeted space, a world that is safe and isolated from the rest of the world, but also a world that is full of fear and not about embracing who you are. And so I don't know. I think that Hockney, when he celebrates this queer culture, he's also kind of referencing this need to hide and the desire to do so.
0: Yeah, I mean that's not at all what I would <laughs> extract and extrapolate <laughs> well. from a from a painting <laughs> like this. I mean, I first of all it's very it is very 60s, right? It has all the aesthetics of 60s. It's very flat, it's very graphic. The colors are very uh are not are not bright. Uh they're reserved. He's working in mostly browns and blues and kind of a green yellow beige it's just it it just feels very uh advertising right like you would see mad men like an ad but at the same time he's whether he's doing it from an intentional perspective or not his perspective is not accurate the perspective feels awkward the swimming the diving board of the swimming pool seems like it might even be below the, the eye level of the pool itself right it feels weird
1: it feels flattened or condensed
0: and that his work kind of does that which is interesting so that adds another dimension of reality to his work where it feels like he's so stylized he's so hyper stylized and almost graphic that he plays with space in interesting ways so I like you know I like that modern feel to his work because it's just weird it makes you feel spatially it's so spatially unorthodox that you feel off balance and perhaps there's something there in the idea of being off balance like there's no way in that painting that the diving board could give you any kind of height to get that kind of splash that's all (laughs) you know what i mean from a from a perspective perspective but at the same time there's such a feeling of discomfort when I see it in terms of the way that it's spatially laid out, that it's just all awkward. And I don't know if that off-balance, awkward feeling has to do with an emotional space that he was in or that was something that was intentional. This is why paintings are so great, right? Here you're talking about something way over here, you know, emotionally, and I'm talking about something way over here. But yet we're both getting a feeling, and Hockney, you know, I, I don't know if he was like Picasso was with Guernica when, when people said, "Well, what is it about? It's like, I don't want to talk about it. I want you, the viewer, to experience it because anytime I project my reality or why I did it or the reason, I did it, it's going to take away from the viewer's experience. So I don't know what. and, and, and we all know, because we just talked about Edward Hopper, which is like, we don't know what his agenda is, right? We don't know what the real reason is because we're thinking it's this, but he's thinking it's that. So who knows why or what real reason he did it. But it definitely, for something so graphic to give you a feeling of this bizarre energy, that, that's, that's amazing, you know what I mean? And you could see the, the use of graphics in all of his work. You know, how flat, things were. And yet, uh, it's not distorted, but the flatness makes it feel distorted in terms of the the three-dimensionality.
1: Sure. Or maybe another way of seeing that distortion is almost that it's a facade. It's like a false artifice and we can't see the interior. And so we question whether it's there. And that reminds me of stage sets and something that is very rooted to L.A. and Mm -hmm the history that we have with film and in this particular painting and I'm not looking at it so you'll have to confirm but I think that the, there's even the splash? yeah the bigger splash that there's an empty director's chair in the background and so that if that's right that that makes it even more specific to right. LA it is great yep. so for me this flatness it's reminiscent of stage sets and facades and how that is tethered to Hockney's own experience with this particular city and so I do think that in a lot of his work, there are elements of ambiguity, like the splash, what does it mean? And I, of mm-hmm. course, take it to a gender sexuality place, <laughs> and you took it to a more technical. And so the within ambiguity, both can live, but I think there's also something that is decidedly about this city.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he's done a lot of stage design. So he works in so many different ways. He's done a lot of theater, uh, obviously you know, photography, and I think if I may derail but go forward with the train here, I think the work that's always captivated me the most, and I say this, there's two people who captivate me in the the collage space. One is the artist who we've already spoken about, and if you haven't listened, go check out our Romar Bearden episode, the greatest or one of the greatest collage artists of all time, and I would say the other artist who's the greatest collage artist of all time which is interesting what he says about photography, but the greatest collage artist of all time is David Hockney, the other one. And and I really believe they use collage in completely different ways. Obviously, David Hockney stacks his photos to make it so animated and moving and plays with space and direction and design in a different way than Romar does because Romar also integrates a lot of uh, drawing and painting into the photography as where Hockney is specific, you know, m- more photo centric in terms of his, his layouts. But, but I feel like nobody does it better in terms of collage than Hockney because he allows you to still feel the emotional spirit without making it feel photo-y, photo photo And he himself is obviously saying, you know, if, if what you say is true that about the Cyclops, that, that, you know, photography is stifling and it's limited, but he's able to use photography in a way where he creates a painting from the photograph.
1: Oh, it's so beautiful. And he, I think in that quote is talking about the single perspective of a camera lens and how that mm. is visually stifling. And so his way of undercutting that is by layering tons of different photographs to create a cohesive composition. There's one that I'm thinking about of the Brooklyn Bridge, Mm -hmm. where it's just photo after photo after photo, and then compiled together, you have this very energized, activated scene of the Brooklyn Bridge that could have been captured in a single point image, but that wasn't, that didn't express enough movement and vitality for Hockney. And so that's why he started to layer photo upon photo.
0: Yeah, he did it in telephone pole as well. Like, and I don't, and maybe somebody—you never know—like where this starts, right? Like, because he got there first, because he got to the museums first, we had, we credit Hockney with this style. I don't know if he stole it from some weird homeless dude who was doing photography, you know, on the street, or you know what I mean. His, who knows? You know what I mean? Like, can he be the inventor and creator of all of this, or the the vanguard of this entire? Because to me, this is so different. Like when I. When I was looking at his photography in the 80s, I was like, I never saw anything like that before. Like, was he the pioneer? I don't know if he was the first, but he was great. And we think he's the first because he got it to, you know, it's like a comedian who gets their joke to, to TV first, then it's their joke, right? We don't know that it could have been lifted or it could have been stolen or people were doing it underground, but he got it to the museum first.
1: And I ultimately don't really think it matters what the actual genesis point is. It's just how it lands or the fact that it lands in our zeitgeist. And some another thing that I find interesting about Hockney mm-hmm. and his relationship to photography is that typically or historically, artists will use a photograph to influence a painting. Like they'll mm-hmm. use it as source material to create the painting. Mm-hmm. And I think yep. that Hockney instead will use it in a more holistic way and so his photography and the way that he layers it actually changed the painting style and made it a little bit more abstracted there's this one painting I think it's of Route 66 Mm. and it is a painting but the way that he creates this dynamic layered movement it seems to come from the photography so he's not just using a photograph as a way to more accurately create the world. He's using a photograph to less accurately see the world.
0: When you say uh, Route 66.
1: I think that's what it's called.
0: Are you talking about Pear Blossom Highway number one?
1: (laughs) Yes, very close to Route 66. Why do they say that? Yeah, that one is a, a... there was a print of it in my grandmother's house, so I used this to spend one, right? yeah, yeah. I used to so spend hours a, looking at that. Yeah,
0: work. no, I because it has it's really weird. It has that kind of Ralph Steadman, Hunter Thompson journey, like the the you know what I mean, the,
1: the epic road trip, yeah, and, the
0: Jack Kerouac. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? It feels epic, and I feel like this is one of his iconic collages. That we don't know the name, or some people think it's Route sixty six. <laughs> I don't know
1: the name. <laughs> yeah, or you
0: don't know the name, but 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 it's Pear Blossom Highway number one, and it is a it is a, a series of photos of all of these crazy uh, 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 images from from cactus cacti to stop signs to California one thirty eight to all these weird little things uh, cr- a crushed Pepsi can and what looks like perhaps pills and cigarette butts on the floor. I mean, all kinds of weird uh, paraphernalia, which is weird. Like, on the way to this road, we fucking raged, and there was all these stories of all these people who stopped here or threw stuff out the window or or who knows, right?
1: And the road is really a locus of freedom, and a car is a locus of of individuality. And I think that together, and especially at this time, the late fifties to early sixties, this concept of a road trip and just the freedom of, of that mm-hmm. and of the land and of the road and of everything that is such an American thing. Yep. And lots of photographers have identified themselves with this kind of thematic, like Robert Frank and, uh, writers, too, like Jack Kerouac mm-hmm. and Ed Ruscha. Also, he addressed the the concept of a road trip. So in Hockney's version and interpretation, I see a different kind of vibe that, as you say, we we get the more the more nuances, the crushed can, the whatever else it may be. And we also get a layering of the compositional effects
0: and and a very strong uh, stop ahead everywhere. There's a stop sign. There's another stop sign that says stop ahead. And then the markings on the road literally say stop ahead. But are you going to stop? No. You're going to keep going down that road to Route 66.
1: But it also stops our (laughs) eye, right? (laughs) Route 66, that's funny. Because every time that there is another photograph or another break Mm. in the way that, that that continuous line is painted, then it almost jolts our eye. And so we have this dialectic of speed of not being forced to stop by anything and then these road signs that physically stop us and the process of his painting and his photography that also physically stops us
0: yeah he is a um he is a prolific artist he's one of those does he have, I'm sure he has an atelier with a bunch of guys working for him right or I'm not no. sure oh, okay
1: but when you mentioned that he is really innovative and he goes from technique to technique, mm-hmm. we have to mention that he was the first artist to create a New Yorker cover from an iPad.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, and I, didn't I think that. that happened
1: in two thousand and fourteen, right around then. But wow. that I think is so phenomenal that this artist, who is not twenty years old, that he embraced technology before anybody else. Well, and he, he knew legitimized.
0: He he knew it was coming.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And and that's a really good point. You're saying he legitimized uh, a whole genre to be acceptable, not only in the illustrative world of editorial and advertising. But in the museum world, right? Because that that is a very ivory tower community of people not allowing new technology, a place where oils are, you know, are key. Like I, I remember painting and acrylics, people are like, you can't show that at a gallery. Now you can, you know, acrylics are st- standard. Right. Oils perhaps still more acceptable, but guys like Hockney broke ground for new young artists to be able to do and utilize different mediums.
1: And it needed to be somebody like Hockney, somebody who already has the legitimacy in the art world to anoint something new. If it had been somebody new, I don't think it would have landed on the cover of The New Yorker or made such a splash.
0: I, I agree. Um, I want to talk about, I, I. you know, look, his work is so many. He's got so much work. He's so prolific. But I saw a show a couple of years ago at, not Lachma, but MoMA, I believe, that had a bunch of his giant portraits where they were full length portraits, uh, six feet plus. Uh, now it was really powerful because it was like the drawing was nice. The painting was nice. The emotional quality was nice. I mean, the way he uses color, uh, he's always searching and evolving. And, you know, I mean, even his still lives are really, are really beautiful. Uh, but that that show kind of blew my mind in terms of the scale, just the scale of it all. And he had work like Arcadia Fletcher. Oh crap. Where is that? Arcadia Fletcher and Robin Katz in 2002. These kind of things where if you look at his work, and it's 54 inches by 42 inches. That's a good size. That's a good size work. But he had work like that that was huge and really interesting because they're just portraits of people.
1: And yet they're so psychologically complex, which is what I really respond to about his portraits. He seems to get the essence of a person and he's not Mm. distracted by the superficial trappings Mm. of what they wear. And he, of course, creates that too. He paints clothing in a really, uh, in a timely way. He paints space. It isn't just the face. So he creates the bric-a-brac, he does all of that, but I think the true subject of each of his portraits is what's happening in the space that we cannot see. And this reminds me, oh my god, I hope that this is true. So there is a legend in my family that when I was two, three, very little girl, I was in an elevator with my mom, and I was in New York, and some guy also in the elevator was staring at me and my mom was kind of creeped out, so she looked. She's like, "Who is that person staring at my daughter?" And she recognized that it was Hockney. It was David Hockney. Whoa! So now, as did he want to paint you? I don't know, but oh. that's what I hope. So every time I see one of his portraits, I'm like, "Are you a three year old girl with big brown eyes and massively curly hair?" And David Hockney, if you're out there, please let me know if it exists. <laughs> that's funny. He, um,
0: you know, he does these giant canvases that I love. They're like. That's one of Gagosian. He did Larry Gagosian in 2013. You know, Jonathan Mills. He does a lot of, you know, people who are uh, notable characters in the art world as, w- as well, as I'm sure, everybody. But I don't know. I, there's something about these portraits that are just so simple. The background and the floor are two different... Uh, seems like same value, two different colors, which is unusual. And there's just... It, there's just something potent about his work. It's not like a uh, technical virtuoso painting, but there's something engaging about it. You know, all of his, all of those, and I, I feel like the size and the scale help because when you see it, I feel like when you see a Hockney in person, it's a way better experience than if you see it on your phone or digitally. He just has that quality too. Well, they're
1: immersive. There's something that makes you feel regardless of the size that you are lost within its complexity. And I love his portraiture too, because I feel that complexity from other people's psychologies. But my favorite body of his work is still the domestic LA homes. The fact that that is a A celebration of queerness and to me that is such a lovely arc for Hockney because he when he was in his 20s did a work of an erect penis a stylized erect penis but he titled it shame Mm. and so going from that work to a bigger splash or some of the more explicit paintings of two men showering for instance I really Mm. see that lovely beautiful sense of self-acceptance.
0: He did so much work. I mean, this is a guy who's been working. If you go to his website, you're looking at 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, and then the recent 82 portraits and one still life. I mean, this guy is like, he's been going forever, man, forever. And look at his early work. Like, you know, he's a really classical guy. I mean, he was very influenced by classical work. It really was. Like, he's a... He's a real deal. He, he's 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 the real deal. Look at yeah. This. He
1: had very traditional art training, and I think the fact that he was able to take that and then depart from it shows yeah. his true genius. And the fact that he is able to embrace technology and grok to it—it just—it's remarkable to me. And moving from the painterly to the photographic to the digital—well done, Hockney. We can't wait to see what you do and next. Then, but
0: also, like back and forth, back and forth, and not and nonstop, and using one. Like the iPad to affect his oils, his oils to affect his acrylics, his collage to affect his uh, his who knows? It, like he's all he's one of those guys that you could you just know if you hang out with him, he's sketching all day, he's drawing all day, he's photographing all day, he's doing that all day. He's like obsessive compulsive, true artistic genius, and he dresses really well which is you know, something that I need to learn from Hockney. More than anything in his paintings, I <laughs> have to feel like, how do I take my bum style and become such an elegant uh, dresser like Hockney? Good job, Hockney. You're a, uh, you're a role a, you're,
1: model in many ways. No,
0: you're, you're the real deal. You're a real deal artist. You're not bullshit. You're not doing it for the... At this stage, you don't do it for the fame and the fortune. If you're this prolific, you do it because you fucking love it. He fucking loves it. And you could tell. And I love that, you know. I love an artist who just fucking loves to create. He's a real creator. He's a creative, and creativity is the ability to, you know, to imagine the possibilities uh, above and beyond anything. And he's really, he's really, uh, he, he. I meant to really say that creativity allows you to see things in a different way, you know. And I think that he's been able to do that, and he's seen things in a different way, which is like, wow.